0: Hi, this is Anna Hosniang. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure.
1: In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs.
0: And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps.
1: Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class. From HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Debellina Chakraborty and I'm Sarah Dowdy. And if you're a fan of the Wild West, Or maybe if you've just watched a lot of TV as a kid, you're probably at least sort of familiar with the character of the Lone Ranger, a fictional renegade lawman who roamed the American West trying to help people fight bad guys and enact justice. And the same character has been featured in a number of ways, on the radio, on TV shows, and in movies. And in all of those cases, his overall story has been pretty similar. He's a guy named John Reed, who is part of a group of six Texas Rangers. One day, five of his group are killed by outlaws, and Reed survives and is rescued by a Native American named Tonto. After Tonto nurses him back to health, Reed makes himself a black mask and becomes the Lone Ranger.
1: Most representations of the Lone Ranger also feature that unmistakable theme song of the William Tell overture. Let's take a listen to that song.
2: So hopefully that got you guys in the mood for this podcast. And another common point that you'll see in most representations of the Lone Ranger is that it's usually played by a white actor. But there are many who believe their inspiration for the Lone Ranger character was actually a man named Bass Reeves, who was not only black, he was a former slave. So Reeves, who became a
1: U.S. deputy marshal, is known as one of the first black lawmen west of the Mississippi River and also one of the bravest and best lawmen as well. In fact, he's been called one of the bravest men this country has ever known. So in that sense, it's not too hard to see how he would have inspired the Lone Ranger character. However, Reeves' life wasn't entirely without controversy. He had more than one incident that almost compromised his reputation and his position as an upholder of the law. But it's those sort of gray areas that some might say make him
2: all the more interesting. So we're going to take a look at Reeve's story and some of his most famous adventures. But first, we're going to look at how, as a black man in the 1800s, he became a deputy marshal in the first place. So Bass Reeves was born into slavery in around July 1838 in either Texas or Arkansas. And we should say here that a lot of the de- these details about his life, especially about Reeves' early life, are kind of sketchy. A lot of them derive from oral history that's been passed along throughout the year. So perhaps it's only fitting that we start out with one of these more debatable facts. Some historians believe he was born near Van Buren, Arkansas, while others think it's more likely he was born in Paris, Texas.
1: One thing we do know, though, was that Reeves and his parents were owned by a man named William S. Reeves, who was a farmer and a politician. That's where he got his last name from, of course. And according to the Oxford African American Studies Center, Reeves worked in the cotton fields as a water boy when he was young. And that's where he started hearing adventurous stories and these songs about black outlaws. And not too much is known about Reeves' parents, but apparently it really worried his mother that her young son was so enthralled with violence and guns and these less than upstanding men, maybe a little afraid her boy would become an outlaw himself. By the time the Civil War broke out, though, in 1861, Reeves was working as the personal servant of William Reeves' son, George Reeves, who was a colonel in the Confederate Army and organized the 11th Cavalry Regiment for Grayson County, Texas. What exactly happened to Bass Reeves during the war is a little bit sketchy, though. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, Reeves claimed to have served in the battles of Pea Ridge, Chickamauga, and Missionary Ridge
2: under Colonel George Reeves. But the Reeves' family, the slave owner Reeves, that is, claimed, and many historians believe, that Bass Reeves actually ran away fairly early on in the war. Supposedly, Bass and George got into an argument while they were playing cards, and Bass attacked George, knocking him unconscious. But by Texas law at that time, Bass Reeves could have been killed for attacking his master like that. So... He took off for Indian Territory. And we talked a little bit about Indian Territory in a podcast we did last February called Who Was America's First Black Millionaire, which was about a woman named Sarah Rector. In that episode, we learned that Indian Territory in the 1800s was basically in the area that would later become the state of Oklahoma in the early 1900s. Black people who lived there were in kind of an interesting position. Initially, Indian tribes kept them as slaves, just as white people did elsewhere in North America. But after something called the Treaty of 1866 between the U.S. government and the five civilized tribes, which included the Creek, the Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, and the Seminole, these tribes had to abolish slavery and make the former slaves, thereafter known as freedmen, full members of their tribes that had quote, equal interest in the soil. So basically, former slaves could own land, and some even served as Indian policemen.
1: So Indian territory was a great place for Reeves to escape to after supposedly attacking his master. Probably for a lot of the same reasons, it was a popular place for outlaws to go and hide out in even after the war. There just weren't a lot of towns and villages, and the Indians there had jurisdiction over themselves. They weren't really subject to U.S. laws there. So good place to go. So Reeves went to Indian territory, found refuge with the Creek and Seminole Indians and while he lived among them, he really picked up their customs, became fluent in the languages. That's been a theme of our recent podcast, I'd say. And besides that, though, besides going and living with Indians in Indian territory, it's sort of unclear what exactly Reeves did during the war. According to an article by Art T. Burton in Wild West, Reeves could have been part of the Union's first Indian Home Guard Regiment under an Indian name, or he might have even served with one of the guerrilla Union Indian bands.
2: Sometime following the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation, Reeves left Indian Territory and settled in Van Buren, Arkansas. By this time, he'd married a woman named Nellie Jenny, who he ended up having ten kids with, five girls and five boys. By the 1870s, he was earning a living as a farmer and a rancher and also occasionally served as a guide for deputy U.S. Marshals who were going into Indian Territory to hunt for outlaws, so his knowledge really came in handy there. Then, in 1875, Judge Isaac C. Parker took over the Fort Smith Federal Court in Arkansas. And Parker became known as the hanging judge for all the death sentences that he handed down in his court. When he took over, his court had jurisdiction over all of western Arkansas and Indian Territory, which was an area of about 75,000 square miles in size. And it was the largest federal court in U.S. history, just in terms of its size. So as we mentioned, Indian Territory was a popular place for outlaws to hide out, and it was considered the most dangerous area in the country. So it was going to be tough going for Judge Parker. So when he came on board, he decided pretty much right away that he wanted to crack down on criminals in that area in particular. So one of the first things he did was order that 200 new U.S. deputy marshals be hired.
1: So these marshals could arrest blacks and whites who weren't members of the tribes in Indian territory. That's what they had power to do. The Indians, of course, had their own law enforcement and courts for their people. So they were outside of of Parker's jurisdiction. Parker also decided that black men would be perfect for these new deputy marshal positions because a lot of Indians didn't trust white deputies. Some white deputies hadn't always treated them so well, no surprise there. But there were there was this precedent of black freedmen uh, who were kind of part of the tribes, part of the community. So Indians tended to trust black people a little more. Therefore, they'd make good potential marshals.
2: Reeves, in particular, was just perfect for one of these positions. After all, as we mentioned, he knew Indian territory well. He once said that he knows the area like quote, "'A cook knows her kitchen.'"
0: you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all.
2: His knowledge of Indian languages and customs was a huge plus, too, because Parker really wanted to keep good relations with the tribes. That close relationship with the Indians actually might have influenced the Lone Ranger story to some extent through the character of Tonto.
1: So, Reeves was commissioned a deputy U.S. Marshal in 1875, went to work. Incidentally, you just mentioned his, his close relationship with Indians that came in part because of his mastery of their, some of their languages. That mastery of languages is even more impressive when you consider that Reeves was illiterate. So, um, I mean, that sounds difficult enough to have several languages in your head and not know how to read or write them, but. In your own language. In your own language. But for his marshal, Work, he'd have to get somebody to read arrest warrants and subpoenas and then he'd memorize the names of the outlaws, any other details, and and head out from there.
2: So now we're getting a little bit into his work, which is really interesting. I mean, a lot of details about his work as a marshal kind of border on legend, which is why his adventures make for such good stories, I think. But what we know for sure is that he was a natural at what he did, or he seemed to be. He was physically well suited for it. For one thing, he was about six foot. Two and anywhere from 180 to 200 pounds. According to another article of Burton's In New Crisis, Reeves personally liked to dress that intimidating frame of his in snazzy clothes. He always had his boots polished, for example, and he liked to wear a big black hat that was slightly upturned in the front. More often than not, though, especially when he was after an outlaw, Reeves would wear disguises, and that was kind of his trademark. He'd disguise himself as a cowboy or a preacher or a farmer or even an outlaw. So this is also kind of a Lone rangerish element to his the story. Black
1: mask, except maybe even a little more interesting.
2: Yeah, I think so, because he went to some serious trouble in these disguises I think and one really Be authentic yes <laughs> and one really well known mission Reeves was pursuing two outlaws in the Red River Valley of the Chickasaw Nation and he heard that they were hiding out somewhere near the Texas border so he rode out that way with his posse by the way at this time deputy marshals would travel around Indian territory with a few possemen a cook and a wagon Just because the area they were patrolling and hunting for outlaws in was so vast. I mean, a typical loop was around, a typical loop that they would travel was around 800 miles. One trip
1: would be 800 miles.
2: Right. So they'd be out there for a while. So the posse set up camp about 28 miles from where these two outlaws they were pursuing were supposed to be hiding out at their mother's house. So then Reeves disguised himself as a tramp.
1: He really paid attention to every detail, too. He removed the heels from an old pair of shoes. He carried a cane with him, and then he put on a floppy hat that he had shot with a few bullet holes to look all roughed up. He also, of course, concealed the handcuffs and the pistol and the badge that he was carrying underneath his clothes. Then he started walking 28 miles, traveling on foot to the mother's house. When he got there, he asked her for some food, you know, complaining that his feet really hurt because he'd been walking and trying to escape from this posse that was pursuing him. The mother really sympathized with him. She let him in. She fed him. She told him that her sons were running away from the law too. She even suggested that maybe he should hang out with her and team up with her own sons so they could protect each other. When the sons came home, they agreed to this plan, this deal that mom has set up for them. and And that night, they set up a separate room for Reeves to sleep in. He insisted that, no, we should all sleep in the same room in case something happens. That way we can protect each other. When the outlaws were asleep, though, he handcuffed them without them waking up. And when morning came, they realized what had happened. And Reeves had to march right on back to his camp, all 28 miles.
2: And apparently the mom followed them for at least three (laughs) of those miles, cursing Reeves the entire way. I have to
1: imagine she would be pretty upset about the whole
2: thing. Yeah, he was pretty happy about it, though. The reward for turning those guys in was $5,000. Typically, these marshals got paid when they brought the outlaws back to court to be tried. So that story's pretty amusing, but it doesn't totally illustrate how dangerous this job really was. Cuffing outlaws in their sleep. Right. (laughs) Reeves was shot at several times during his career as a marshal. His belt was shot into two once. Another time, his hat brim was shot off. And still another time, his bridle rein was cut by a bullet. But it's said that he himself was never actually wounded, which I think is just fascinating. Well, he was a
1: real gun expert, too. His weapon of choice was a Winchester rifle, but he was... Also known to carry around two Colt revolvers that were positioned butt forward on his belt for easy access, and conveniently for a ranger, a lawman, he was ambidextrous, so pretty much equally good no matter which hand he was shooting with, probably especially handy when you're shooting on horseback. Family secrets. It turns out that just about everyone has them, which accounts for the incredible outpouring of community and sharing of these stories that's happening as a result of my podcast, Family Secrets. My name is Danny Shapiro, and I'm a writer, author of the Instant New York Times bestselling memoir, Inheritance, which I wrote after discovering a massive secret that had been kept from me all my life. That discovery changed my life in good ways and hard ways and led to this podcast. I hope you'll join us for some incredible conversations about family, identity, and what happens to both when the secrets that have been kept from us and the secrets we keep finally come to light. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite
2: podcasts. Reeves was still really careful, even though he was heavily armed, though. It's said that he rode a big red stallion with a white blaze on its face. So just like the Lone Ranger, he has his signature horse. His trusty
1: steed. Yep. Yep
2: fiery horse with the speed of light a cloud of dust and a hearty high silver but he also kept some other horses around for his undercover work apparently if you rode a horse that was too fancy that would tip off the outlaws that you were a marshal no matter what kind of disguise or outfit you were wearing so he couldn't just ride his red horse around well
1: I have to imagine too if you had such a distinctive horse to a red stallion with a white blaze people would begin to, to recognize that pretty easily that's very true Most of all though, Reeves was just unbelievably brave. He really didn't seem to be afraid of anything. For one example, there was a place 80 miles west of Fort Smith that was known as the Deadline. Sort of the end of civilization. And when deputy marshals crossed that line, they were thought to be as good as dead. You know, you're taking your life into your own hands by crossing the deadline. But Reeves really just saw it as a challenge. He would go riding across the deadline several times just to, just to do it.
2: But his bravery is maybe most evident in the encounter where he comes as close as he ever did to losing his life. And that happened in 1884 when he got ambushed by three outlaws, the Brunter brothers, and they were wanted for horse stealing, robbery, and murder. When they ambushed him, they told him to get off his horse and to keep his hands away from his gun. But Reeves did not follow their instructions at all. He stayed really calm and showed them warrants he had for their arrest. And he just asked them, you know, what day is it so I can make a note of this for the government? I want to make sure my paperwork is good. At that point, the outlaws
1: just thought he was crazy and started laughing at him. And while they were distracted, while they were so amused, Reeves shot two of them dead, diverted the gun
2: barrel of the third and then killed him. And Reeves actually killed quite a few outlaws during his career, even white ones, which might have gotten him lynched in other areas of the country. And I'm not sure on this point if he actually got paid for the ones that he killed. I've seen sort of differing opinions in various sources out there. So if anyone out there knows, if you get paid for the ones that you killed, too, (laughs) please let us know. We're not sure how this whole deputy marshal thing worked in that respect, but... Of course, as we hinted at earlier, there's more to the story than just Reeves wins. As you might imagine, with the line of work he was in, his life was tainted a little bit with scandal, too. The biggest one had to do with the death in 1884 of his black cook, William Leach.
1: So early that April, when Reeves' posse was camping out near the Canadian River, Leach and Reeves got into an argument that supposedly started when Reeves was dissing Leach's cooking. Not a bad or not a good idea rather. Things escalated though and according to some accounts, Leech poured some hot grease down the throat of this puppy that Reeves had there in camp with them. After that, Reeves furious shot Leech so nothing came of this incident for a while, but then in January of 1886, Reeves was indicted for first degree murder, arrested, and held in jail for six months until he could make bond. Kind of shocking that this famous lawman couldn't make bond for six months, but.
2: I know, apparently he made a, quite a bit of cash, too, yeah. bringing in criminals, yeah. so.
1: His trial, though, started October 1887, and Reeves hired really great attorneys who brought in 10 witnesses for his defense. He testified that he had argued with Leach, but it wasn't really that big of a deal. And then later, while trying to dislodge a bullet from his Winchester rifle, the gun had accidentally misfired and happened to hit and kill
2: Leach. Reeves was acquitted, but the trial depleted his savings and he had to move his family to a different home outside of Van Buren. And after that, Reeves went back to catching outlaws, but he was eventually stationed in different areas. In 1883, he'd already transferred from Fort Smith to the federal court at Paris, Texas. And then in 1898, he transferred again to Muskogee, which was where he was until Oklahoma became a state in 1907. But Reeves had one more brush with scandal later in his career. After returning from one of his trips to deliver prisoners to federal jail in Muskogee, he learned that his own son had been charged with murdering his wife and was somewhere hiding out in Indian Territory. So, of course,
1: knowing whose son this is, none of the other deputies wanted the job of bringing the kid in. Reeves, of course, was adamant about doing it himself. I mean, I have to imagine partly just because he didn't want something to happen to his son. Right. Um, It took him two weeks to to get him, but Reeves returned with his son, whom he later turned over to the court. His son ended up in Leavenworth Prison, another place where our, our podcast subjects seem to be going lately, um, but was eventually pardoned and apparently
2: never got into any more trouble. Reeves served as a deputy U.S. Marshal in Indian Territory for a total of 32 years and was the only one who did so from Judge Parker's appointment until Oklahoma statehood.
1: All told, he's said to have arrested more than 3,000 outlaws and killed about 14, though it's very likely there may have been more than 14 killed.
2: His work ended after Oklahoma became a state, and after that, he walked a downtown beat for the Muscogee Police Department for two years, and there was apparently never a crime on his beat. So this was kind of a relaxing retirement job almost to for him. commit your crimes on, on Reeves' day off, maybe? <laughs> right. But it didn't last too long. Reeves died at home January 12, 1910, after being diagnosed with Bright's disease. So... Was he the real Lone Ranger? We have to go back to that question we posed in the title of this podcast. Well... As we mentioned, he's said to have influenced or inspired the character. Obviously, some details of his life are quite different from The Lone Ranger's, but it's easy to see how his brave personality and his wild adventures would have influenced a tale about a hero of the Wild West.
1: Yeah, I mean, after all, he's been called, quote, one of the most successful lawmen in American history. That sounds like somebody worth making a TV show on. He was also the first African-American inducted into the Great Westerners Hall of the National Cowboy Hall of Fame in Oklahoma City in 1992. And then on December 5th, 2010, he was inducted into the Oklahoma Law Enforcement Hall of Fame. And in November 2011, th- these awards just kept on being heaped on him, Oklahoma State Legislature passed an act officially declaring the bridge that passes over the Arkansas River between Muskogee and Fort Gibson, Oklahoma
2: as Bass Reeves Memorial Bridge. So, people kind of continue to commemorate him and research his life. Art Burton, whose articles we mentioned in this episode, has a book on him called Black Gun Silver Star. And there are some others as well. I think there's one called Bad News for Outlaws by Vonda Nelson. And there's also a new Lone Ranger movie coming out in 2013. It stars Johnny Depp as Tonto, Army Hammer as the Lone Ranger, and Helena Bonham Carter as. We don't know who, but we'll find out, I guess. (laughs) Somebody. Yeah, we don't know if there will be any Bass Reeves nods in that that one, but it'll be interesting to check out. Maybe
1: Johnny's listening to this podcast and is
2: going to go mess with the script a little bit. That's an exciting (laughs) thought. With Johnny Depp in our heads, it's always a good time to transition on over to Listener Mail. So this postcard is from Dave
1: and it is a very special postcard because it's from Antarctica and Teplena so, and I were talking. I think this means now that we have received postcards from every continent in the world.
2: I don't feel silver. Woo! So awesome. So I feel like we need some celebration music there or something. <laughs> not not like polar
1: silence. But um, Dave wrote to say that uh, at least one podcast listener was present at the centennial observation of Robert Scott's arrival at the South Pole. Uh, The Scott ceremony was a sober affair, as you might expect. But the night before the ceremony, Major Henry Worsley of the British Army talked about Scott's journey, illustrated with photos he and his companions had taken as they skied along Scott's route the previous weeks. Anyway, thanks for making history entertaining. My wife, daughter, and I are all devoted listeners. So thank you, Dave. It's a cool postcard, too. It is of the South Pole. Kind of a... a Contemporary art illustration of the South Pole. Cool. So awesome, Antarctica.
2: We also got a postcard from Monica in London, and she recently attended an exhibit at the Natural History Museum of L- Scott's last expedition, and it was man-hauled sledges. It which was. She said a, is the postcard of.
1: Yeah, Katie and I discussed man-hauled sledges a bit in that episode, and it is kind of a horrifying-looking situation. It's. Let's see, four guys straining
2: under this giant sled packed with boxes. And in the realm of I listen while I X, Monica tells us that she listens while she knits on the tube on her way to class.
1: Sounds fun. So thank you, Monica, and thank you, Dave, for our our chilly postcards we received. And if you guys want to make any other suggestions to us or let us know, um, if you've attended exhibits about topics we've covered, anything like that, we are at History podcast at discovery.com. Remember, it's our new email address. We're also still
2: at Missing History on Twitter, and we are on Facebook. And if you want to learn a little bit more about some of the topics we mentioned today on the podcast, you can look up an article called How the Emancipation Proclamation Worked. And you can find that by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House
0: of Works staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House of Works iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.
2: The richest, most powerful place on Earth. A fiction podcast. Tuman Bay. Bay. On an epic scale.
1: Power is everything. Power gives everything.
2: We have to get away from this place.
1: Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the
2: iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay.
1: Be sharp and die for Tuman Bay!
0: Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm Shane Bacon, and I want to tell you about a new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homan, Shane Bacon. One guy that has probably hit a 350-yard drive considers himself an athlete mostly because of his unreal papa shot abilities and has in fact started to show off signs of a tricep forming is our own Max Homa, PGA Tour winner and fan favorite online. Max and myself turn out new episodes every week to give the fan a unique look at golf and all that comes with it from someone that spends his work weeks on tracks we all dream to play, grind in and out with the best in the world. Listen and follow, get a grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts right now.